1: Today on Something You Should Know, how much Halloween candy do you think gets thrown away every year? You'll be amazed. Then how little things make or break a relationship, like saying thank you, being
2: appreciative, and... Tell your partner how they can shine for you. Tell them what you do want them to do, rather than what you don't want them to do. People have a much easier time hearing a positive need Also, why people are not watching and judging you
1: the way you think. And the fascinating world of graveyards and cemeteries. There's so much you don't know. For instance...
0: There's even a secondary market for graves. So people who have a site that's near Marilyn Monroe can sell their site, in one case for millions of dollars, uh, on, I think it was on eBay. All this today on Something You Should Know.
1: Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know, with Mike Carruthers. Hi, this episode is being published right around Halloween time, and as it turns out, some 172 million Americans will celebrate Halloween this year, and 95% of those people will buy candy with each person spending about $27.55 on average. Now, here is a surprising statistic. I mean, this really surprised me. Every year, Americans throw away about $400 million worth of uneaten candy from trick-or-treating. That's a lot of wasted candy. One solution to that would be to stop giving away candy to kids that they don't like in the first place. Now, interestingly, there are regional differences in terms of what candies kids like in the U.S., but here are the top 10 candies overall in the United States, and if you stick to these, uh, chances are not so much will go to waste. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Skittles, M&M's, Starburst, Hot Tamales, Sour Patch Kids, Hershey's Kisses, Snickers, Tootsie Pops, and Candy Corn. Buy those candies and kids are a lot less likely to throw them away. And I'll put that list of candies, the top 10 list of candies, in the show notes. And that is something you should know. For as long as there have been couples in love, there has been conflict in love, which often leads to more conflict, which leads to more problems in the relationship. And anyone who's been in a relationship knows that's pretty much inevitable. And for many years, psychologist John Gottman and his wife Julie have been helping people and have really become recognized as true experts when it comes to dealing with conflict in relationships. John and Julie are founders of the Gottman Institute, and they have a new best-selling book out that just zoomed up the Amazon charts the moment it was released. It's called The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. And Julie Gottman is here to discuss how we can all deal better with conflict in our relationships. Hey, Julie, welcome. Thanks for being here.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Sure. So as you look at this, what is it
1: about couples? What is it that typically goes wrong where things, you know, presumably in a relationship start out pretty good, and then something happens.
2: You know, Mike, um, I think the biggest problem is that people don't take relationships one-on-one in high school. And so nobody really knows how to manage conflict in a way that works successfully and maintains calmness and a gentle tone while people are talking about a problem they have. What happens instead is criticism, is contempt, defensiveness, and all of those cause much more hostility, pain, uh, misunderstanding especially during conflict, people also don't work on how to create more positivity in their relationship by expressing appreciation or thanks or asking each other big questions so they can stay in touch with who their partner is. Those are some of the issues.
1: So if a couple really wanted to make an effort, like what what's the thing that kickstarts, m- biggest bang for your buck in trying to to turn
2: a relationship around that's, that's in trouble? Small things often can make a big difference in the long run. And by small things, what I mean is recognizing when your partner is making a bid for your attention or your interest, or perhaps a deeper need they may have, and learning that Turning towards your partner, which means responding in a positive way to your partner rather than either totally ignoring them or turning against them by responding with hostility will make a huge difference, huge difference in the relationship. We found in our research in a lab that looked like an apartment where couples were videotaped for 12 hours at a time, we found that the partners who turned towards each other by responding positively to their partner's bids for connection succeeded in the relationship, and the folks that turned towards each other who were successful did so 86% of the time. Six years later, they were successful in their relationship. The folks who did not, who turned away or ignored their partner or turned against their partner with hostility if their partner asked them to do something, those folks only turned towards each other positively 33% of the time. And that strongly predicted couples breaking up. So let me explain how easy this is. If I say to John, wow, look at that beautiful bird. That is so cool. As I'm looking out the window, John can either say, wow, that is a cool bird. Now, how long did that take? About two seconds? Or he can totally ignore me. Or he can say, stop interrupting me. I'm trying to read. So that little, wow, that is beautiful is all it takes to begin to change the relationship in a positive direction, if they're practiced fairly consistently. Talk about the importance of empathy in a relationship. Empathy means naming what you think is the other person's feelings and then adding some validation, which sounds like, wow, no wonder you're feeling so angry. I get it. Or man that would really make me anxious too i get it i understand so you're actually going a little bit deeper and you're not 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 solving the problem for your partner a lot of people make the mistake of jumping in uh first thing and saying have you thought about doing X or Y or Z. And typically what that ends up doing is cutting off the speaking partner from actually really talking about where they're living inside, which is, you know, the emotional world they're having related to the stress, what they're really feeling. They're just immediately getting shoved into problem solving and they're not ready for that yet. And then, if your partner asks, what do you think I ought to do, then that's the time to maybe offer up solutions.
1: One of your suggestions seems so small, and that is to say thank you. Why is that? What does that do? What's the magic that maybe isn't so obvious to doing that?
2: We have seen that people who really notice what their partner is doing right, in the relationship have a much more successful relationship than those who don't notice what their partner is doing right. Let me give you an example that comes from the research. Um, A pair of, of researchers named Robinson and Price did a study where they put independent observers into couples' homes. And they noticed that the couples who had a successful relationship years later noticed about 98% of what their partner was doing right and as judged by the observer who was watching the couple. However, in homes where the couple was distressed and didn't end up staying together, the partners only noticed 50% of what the other person was doing right. So, It makes a huge difference, first of all, to be aware to look for what your partner is doing right. And that's a habit of mind you have to form rather than just looking for what your partner is doing wrong. And then, secondly, when we hear thank you, we feel appreciated. And because we feel appreciated, which is kind of a warm, loving feeling, we want to do more to get that appreciation. (laughs) So what that means is you're creating a cycle in which you do something right. Your partner says thank you and appreciates it. You wanna do it more. You do more that is right. You hear more thank yous and so on. So you're creating a really positive culture within the home that feels great for both of you. Which is great advice, but I think the problem a
1: lot of people in couples have is remembering to keep looking for the positive, to keep those positive glasses on and see what they do positively rather than find all the things they do wrong.
2: Mm -hmm. Mike, you're absolutely right. You know, this culture that we live in, in this country, is a very critical culture. Criticism is used all the time when kids are parented. Criticism is used in school all the way from kindergarten up through college. And criticism is used at work, you know, constructive criticism. So what that teaches us and what we internalize is always to Pay attention to what we ourselves are doing wrong and what everybody else is doing wrong. And it's a struggle to break that habit. But I think if you really work at it, you practice, huh, interesting. In the kitchen today, my husband made the coffee. He makes it every day. And so you can say, thank you. Thank you for making the coffee. I've been saying that to John for the last 35 years. Um, but do you have to
1: remember, a- I, oh, I really need to remember to thank him for the coffee because th- that really helps our relationship? Or is does it become more part of just the kind of organic flow of conversation?
2: I think at first it almost feels a little phony because it's not your natural way of interacting. So yeah, you do have to force it a little bit because it's not something you're used to. But after a time, if you continue to practice it and you're also receiving it from your partner so you know how good it feels, you wanna do it more and it becomes much more of a habit. So it's really developing a new habit of mind we're talking about.
1: We're talking about how the little things make such a big difference in relationships, and I'm speaking with Julie Gottman. The name of her book is The Love Prescription, Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Just go to indeed.com/something right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on something you should know indeed.com/something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need indeed.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the Must not take yourself too seriously and six1 since that matters and what do I even say other than "Hey) <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: So, Julie, it's it's interesting how we all know we don't like to be criticized, and yet we have no problem criticizing our partner because it just it, it, because we do.
2: Right. And we want things to be perfect. And sometimes, especially early in marriage or relationship, uh, we want to make our partners a clone of us. (laughs) So we tell them all the things they're doing wrong because it's not who we are, which is a big mistake, actually, uh, because if your partner is a clone of you, you're going to get bored very fast. So... It's very important to look at your partner as a separate person with their own unique personality traits, lifestyle preferences, um, and notice how they enrich the relationship with their different points of view or the different ways they handle situations. You say
1: me. you say a date night is really important. Wh- wh- why? I mean, I, I mean, we've all heard that. Oh, you should have a date night with your spouse because that's your time, and it's so easy to forget to do it, and a lot of people mm-hmm. don't do it. But what what makes it so special,
2: uh, Mike? There was a study done at UCLA where they timed how much couples talk to one another over the course of a week and dual career couples only talk to each other 35 minutes a week. Isn't that incredible? And most of those conversations were a checklist, you know, have you called the plumber? Did you uh, attend the teacher conference? You know, they're just a big checklist. So what happens after a while is your life becomes drudgery. And your relationship is part of that. So, date night is an opportunity for just the two of you with nobody else, just the two of you catching up with each other, talking about how the week went, um, what were the highlights, what were the lowlights, you know, really making more emotional connection. With one another without constantly being interrupted by the to-do list. And that keeping up with one another is the opportunity for people to keep knowing each other as the partners are each changing over the course of time. So you stay you know, in tune with one another, you know what your partner is feeling about different aspects of their life and your life together. And you can also talk sometimes about dreams you may have for the future, or ways that your lives could be improved now. Lots of stuff to talk about. You just have to make the time for it. I have to
1: ask you, do you and John ever fight Or is it always these very nice flowing (laughs) conversations where we just trying to support each other? Or do you ever
2: scream at each other and go, no, damn it, no? (laughs) Of course, absolutely. We are all in the same soup. You know, one thing I like to tell people is that, you know, John and I are not gurus. We're not absolute experts. We make mistakes all the time. As a matter of fact, in every couple workshop that we've done over the last 25 years, we always process a recent fight that we've had in front of the audience, just directly in front of the audience so they can understand how to process you know, a past regrettable incident. And we're never at a lack for those <laughs> incidents. <laughs> so, well, sure, of course we have them. We're human beings, just like all of us.
1: Talk about the need for asking for what you need because I think people don't really get that or know how to do that in a way that that they think will work.
2: Yes. There is a formula for doing that. So what is the best way to say what you need? Here's how. And we got this from the 3,000 couples that we studied in our labs We didn't invent this. This is what the successful couples do. They start with, I feel some emotion. I'm angry, for example. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I'm upset or I'm stressed. Then about what? What is the situation? They describe the situation neutrally without blame or criticism. So that's going to sound like, I'm worried that the bills haven't been paid yet. So it's not you haven't paid the bills, you know, pointing your finger at them, but the bills haven't been paid. There's a new dent in the car. The kitchen is a mess. You just describe the situation that you're upset about. Then, last step... You state your positive need, and what I mean by positive need is tell your partner how they can shine for you. Tell them what you do want them to do, rather than what you resent or don't want them to do. People have a much easier time hearing a positive need than a resentment, which is going to end up feeling like criticism. But in the moment,
1: it's so hard to remember to say it that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Sure, of course, Mike. Um, criticism is always the first thing that comes to our mind. You're so lazy, you never clean up the kitchen, etc. So again, it's practice. This stuff is just practice. Well,
1: I think the, the big message here. And you said it right at the beginning, that it's it's these little things that really matter. And they, I think they matter, people have heard, that the it's the little things that count. But it's bigger than I think people even realize.
2: That is true. Those little things compose either the beauty or the disaster of a relationship. One of the small
1: things that you talk about that I think is really interesting... And I think people have a sense of is the the power and the importance of touch.
2: touch is something that is so so deeply needed by people that uh, if you take infants and you deprive them of touch, they have a much higher chance of actually dying. There was an experiment, or not an experiment, an observation done in an orphanage compared to another one. And in one orphanage, the babies were touched and held and rocked. In the other orphanage, they weren't. Both of them fed the babies, kept them dry, and so on. But there was a much higher sickness and death rate in the babies who were not touched. And we do not outgrow the need for touch. We need cuddling, we need affection, we need sex too. But that Other kind of touch, just the warmth, releases oxytocin, which is the hormone of bonding in our bodies. So if you hug somebody for 20 seconds, you're getting a big dose of this wonderful bonding hormone moving through your body, making you feel better and warmer. There's a woman named Tiffany Field who did research in Florida on touch for Gosh, probably 30 years. And she found that affectionate touch reduces depression, reduces anxiety, creates more bonding, of course, creates more joy in a relationship. So why not? Well, even though, I mean, most of us
1: have heard about how the little things make a difference, in, but, but it's good to be reminded of it, especially by someone like you who really studies this, because it's so easy to forget to do the little things, because, you know, you're busy, you've got a lot to do, and, and it's good to, like, refocus back on that. So I appreciate you spending the time. I've been speaking with Julie Gottman. She is a psychologist, and she and her husband, John Gottman, are founders of the Gottman Institute, and they're authors of the new best-selling book, The Love Prescription. Seven Days to More Intimacy, Connection, and Joy.
2: And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.
1: Something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. There is something about Halloween and cemeteries. They seem to go hand in hand. Cemeteries are often thought of as spooky places. They can also be some very beautiful places. But what all cemeteries have in common is... A lot of dead people. And in many ways, cemeteries are very interesting places for a lot of spooky and non-spooky reasons. Here to discuss this is Greg Melville. He's an outdoor journalist and former editor at Men's Journal and Sports Afield Magazines. And he's author of a book called Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries. Hi, Greg. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, first of all, what makes a cemetery a cemetery? Because we have other terms, seemingly older terms, like graveyard or burial ground. How is that different than
0: a cemetery? That's a great question. And actually, so it it is an old term, but it's one that generally wasn't used anywhere, really. Uh, In the United States, cemeteries were basically called graveyards and burial grounds until the early 1800s and that's when that first untethered cemetery that became the first city park mount auburn in cambridge massachusetts when it was created and its creator had a hard time selling people on the idea of a cemetery not only the neighbors for where it was going to be built but then customers to, to be buried there so he wanted to create this fancy name for it and so instead of calling it a graveyard or a burial ground he called it a cemetery and marketed it as a cemetery as this new place and the word and name caught on from there so are our cemetery
1: cemeteries they've always been kind of the way they are in in america and that's just cemeteries
0: The cemeteries in America today are actually very different, or at least the burial customs today are very different than they were 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And we do kind of have this all-American style and format to how we remember and memorialize and bury the dead.
1: So how how have the customs and traditions of burying the dead, basically, how have they changed over time?
0: Well, there are 144,000 cemeteries in America roughly. And each one has its own styles uh, or layout or design or story. Uh, and and but really so this idea that we that every person gets a grave and every person gets a gravestone kind of every person gets a trophy in the afterlife, that's really only about 150 years old. Prior to that, cemeteries were largely repositories for the dead, where there were only a few stones that would stand up from the ground with a lot of bodies uh, inside them. And then today, uh, actually cremation has overtaken burials as far as how people want their, I guess, eternal remains to be uh, disposed. And why is that? why have so many people
1: decided to be cremated rather than buried? I'll bet you that that number is a lot higher than it was just, what, probably 10, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, it is. And, and the number of cremations is growing rapidly. And, and cemeteries in some ways are kind of dying. Uh, they're looking for ways to survive. and And I have to say that cemeteries do kind of get a a bum rap, and I understand that because of all the dead people in them. But there are these amazing places of history and culture and everything. I think the reason why the uh, cremation is, is overtaking part of it is obviously the environmental side, but then part of it is also that we found other ways to kind of memorialize ourselves. Uh, Facebook, for instance, can carry a lot more data on our lives and provide this kind of digital immortality that's very different from just the data that is stored on a gravestone what what i find interesting it well a couple of things like a lot of
1: cemeteries when you go there during the day i mean they're beautiful they're like parks they're like gorgeous the the flowers and the trees and all that it's it's a lot takes on a much spookier kind of image at night but cemeteries are like a, a place to go and and a place to go to visit the graves of loved ones. And yet, many people will say, well, I know they're not really here, but there's something about visiting their grave that people like to do, which I suspect is a relatively recent thing, or,
0: or no? It is. It, it really, and that's kind of an American thing, too, that there is this eternal resting place. And a lot of places like even over in Europe, you'll find some of the great cemeteries there that because they've run out of room, it's almost like a temporary space. And then the bones can be removed later on uh, so that the space can be used for someone else. But in America, we we have this kind of idea of individuality in life and in death that really permeates cemeteries. Where Where did the idea
1: that cemeteries are spooky i mean obviously there's dead people buried there but the it's connected to halloween and and it and it's like spirits and goblins and ghosts how did that happen
0: take for instance the burial hill where the pilgrims buried their dead the gravestones were very ominous and spooky and gothic and scary and And it has skulls on them, and and even the writing, if you go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and you see them, and it says, like, here lieth, it looks very, very Shakespearean, because it was actually created around the time of Shakespeare. That's really kind of the oldest existing European cemetery in the United States. And if you look, the roots of the spookiness go straight to there, and the gravestones there, Uh, and I've probably been carried on ever since.
1: When you go to Europe, you go to England, you'll see graves on a lot of church grounds. Old churches have graves around the church. And now we have standalone cemeteries where there's no church involved. It's just a place where people are buried. Where where in America, when did in America did that idea of a standalone cemetery start?
0: Well, the very first kind of big standalone cemetery in the United States was... Uh, Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Mass., and it became the first city park in the country because at that time, nature was seen as something to be conquered and not conserved. But people needed a place to go outside of Boston in order to, they, they were looking for a place to kind of have a picnic and recreate. And so the cemetery became basically the second leading tourist attraction in the country besides Niagara Falls. And people from all over the world came to visit it, royalty, celebrities, and it was just this amazing place. And then it was supplanted, it was replaced as, as this huge tourist attraction by another cemetery in Brooklyn called Greenwood, which then opened up and became kind of this the f- country's first public art museum. Because at that time there were no art museums and the sculptures that were created and placed up atop the graves there were like a sight not seen anywhere in the world.
1: So when people are buried, we hear the term six feet under, is that, is that about right?
0: Are people buried six feet below the surface? I always thought they were because horror movies always told me that it was six feet under and, and lore always told me. And then before my senior year of college, I worked in the cemetery in my hometown in Bedford, Massachusetts, and I learned that is not the case necessarily. Uh, It's generally between four and five feet in most places because six feet is really deep and takes a long time to dig, even if you have um, machinery to do it. Uh, uh, Graves can collapse uh, if they're that deep. It was really something that probably started during a plague in London centuries ago that they – specified burials had to be six feet deep in order to protect people from the health hazards of plague, and also to protect from grave robbers and animals from digging up the graves. But generally in in the United States, no, it is not six feet. It's more like four or five feet. In the
1: history of cemeteries, are there ones that really stand out as being, I don't know, transformational or, or really important cemeteries?
0: There's a cemetery in Los Angeles that was basically the first theme park uh, in America. And the layout was used to basically by Walt Disney to create Disneyland. And Walt Disney was later buried in the cemetery. It's called Forest Lawn Memorial Park. But then also, most importantly, you have uh, the national cemeteries, Gettysburg and Arlington, which caused a dramatic shift in how we preserve the dead how we bury the dead and how we look at death uh, in america in a really profound way
1: so I, I want to go back to forest lawn that you spoke about a moment ago because uh, i don't think i get how a cemetery can be a theme park and how disneyland was kind of patterned after it and walt disney is then buried there again put that all together for me
0: a theme park is is a park where people go to that is based around a specific theme so knott's berry farm uh, is considered kind of the first theme park disneyland is a theme park as opposed to an amusement park and really they were they both popped up after Forest Lawn. Forest Lawn basically looks like a country club. It's on the side of a mountain and it's all grassy with all of the headstones placed down. There are no trash cans or anything like that that you can see. They're all concealed in, to look like logs. There are speakers that pipe music throughout the, the cemetery. And it has these amazing buildings where there are these incredible paintings and sculptures so it's it's like it has art and also it has chapels where there are weddings including uh ronald reagan was married in one in 1940 and they look like they're out of cinderella and so this it became the number one tourist attraction in california for close to four decades only to be replaced by disneyland itself in 19 in the early 1950s
1: just seems it just seems like an odd idea to me to 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 make a cemetery be so not
0: in cemetery like and really what the creator of that cemetery was trying to do was sell this idea of security in eternal in eternal rest and really that would be surrounded with themes of patriotism and god and eternal life and he wanted it to be a place where Many people would come to 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 visit, even if they had no one there, even today, or no loved one there. Even today, about a million people a year come just to visit the sites of Forest Lawn. He changed every attitude towards cemeteries at that time, and then also the layout of cemeteries because many follow that same kind of open green country club space look. Even the name Forest Lawn Memorial Park is to draw people's attention away from death when they go there for buying a grave, but then also to visit. It's supposed to be a place of life, like I said, kind of a country club looking place. And so he very much tried to de-emphasize death, even though there are tens of thousands of people buried there.
1: So you say the Civil War change the way we view death in many ways, or the way we do death in many ways in the US. So talk about that.
0: At the time of the Civil War, a good death in the United States was considered a death where you died at home in what was called the death room at that time, which later was changed to the living room because it sounds better, frankly. But you were surrounded by your friends and family, and uh, the, the dying person, would utter their last words, which would be recorded. And then friends and family would take that person in a generally a pine box, carry them to the churchyard or the yard of the house of worship and and bury them. And that was considered the good death that was part of leading someone to salvation. But during the civil war, there were a lot of people who didn't necessarily, it was not a good death, right? On those battlefields. So Lincoln had to create or redefine the good death uh, and he does that in the Gettysburg address when he is dedicating the Gettysburg National Cemetery there by talking about the people who consecrate the ground just by being there and so it changed this idea of the good death and made it so that it wasn't necessarily something that was in the home which then kind of brought about the rise of funeral homes uh, after that and the Civil War itself brought about the rise of embalming because Lincoln wanted uh, soldiers to be able to get transported back to their families, uh, still preserved. And so at that time, embalming was a very rare method that was just used in Europe and in some places in the United States to preserve bodies for medical schools. And then then became widespread. I want to talk about tombstones because that's like a whole business in and of itself and tombstones can get very elaborate and where where did that where did that all begin really the use of tombstones became popular with the creation of the Church of England when it broke off from the Catholic Church and at that time people could uh, usually pay indulgences in order to ensure that they could get into heaven but The indulgences disappeared. It was one of the reasons for the creation of the Church of England. So uh, well-to-do people at that time, they needed other ways to grease the skids for getting into heaven. And one of them was to create these ostentatious gravestones that would extol their virtues to generations to come so that people could see their worthiness uh, and the reason why they should be saved.
1: Now, is, uh, certainly, in the movies and and around Halloween, you hear you know, the the stories of grave robbing. Is was that really a big problem? And at at some point, and if so, when and why? And and talk about that.
0: Sure, if you go back to the seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds uh, in the United States, urban cemeteries were rife with grave robbing. There's the story about John Hancock, one of the original signers of the Declaration of Independence, who when he was buried in Boston's granary burial ground, within a day, his grave was dug up and the rings were stolen from his fingers. Uh, And really also during the early 19th century, medical students were known in a lot of cities to steal graves because there were not enough cadavers to go around as medical schools suddenly proliferated. And so there were clubs like at Harvard University, where Two people would go out at night, and they would go to a cemetery, and one would stand lookout, and the other one would dig up a body, and they would bring it back to the medical school uh, so that they could use as cadavers for dissecting. Um, it was that was one of the reasons why the the cemeteries became untethered from the churchyards and were placed on the outskirts of towns, uh, starting in the mid 1800s, because it was just so there were so many bodies there and they were su- such rich targets uh, in the middle of cities that they expanded outwards how
1: else have cemeteries impacted america american history over the
0: years really cemeteries were the first cultural battleground in the cold war so those cemeteries that we've that so many of us have visited in europe in normandy and other places where the battlefields were those were designed specifically with the intent of battling communism to serve as symbols of American might and frankly about Christianity and how that prevails or should prevail over communism and atheism. And when you look at those cemeteries and how they're laid out and the symbolism of religion mixed with kind of the might of American soldiers and earnestness is really pretty remarkable. Uh, and the the intent that went behind that, because they understood that these were symbols that would last for generations and generations and would be forever implanted into the countryside in some of these countries in Europe and stand as American soil. One thing I've always found interesting,
1: and, and I kind of get it, but it's still a little weird to me is how a lot of people are attracted to celebrity graves that, and they visit them. They make trips to visit the graves of famous people.
0: Right. And, and there's even a secondary market for graves. So people who have say a site that's near Marilyn Monroe can sell their, their site uh, for, in one case for millions of dollars uh, on, I think it was on eBay. Uh, And so yeah, the even the the idea of being buried in proximity to a star is really something that's sought after. Well, listening to you, it's really amazing how uh,
1: cemeteries have played such an interesting role in in American history and American culture, and it's particularly interesting to hear it around Halloween. I've been speaking with Greg Melville, and the name of his book is Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries. And if you'd like to read it, there is a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Greg. Thanks so
0: much. I appreciate it.
1: Social scientists call it the imaginary spotlight. It's when you're doing something and you think everyone's watching you and judging you. For example, if you're at a gym and you're working out on a fitness machine, you can start to think that other people are watching how you're doing it. But guess what? They're not. Just as you're not watching them, they're not watching you. The fact is that people think about us and judge us a lot less than we think because most people are thinking about themselves and their own activities. In other words, other people are just not that into you. This is according to David Allen, who's author of a book called I Can't Believe I Just Did That. And he says it's important to realize this because we often avoid taking a risk for fear of what other people will think. But you should probably just go ahead and do it anyway because no one really cares. They're all too wrapped up in their own lives. And that is something you should know. You could help us by spreading the word about this podcast and telling other people about it and getting them to listen. Just one person. It would be a great way for you to support this podcast. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.